Thanks for listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, where we always bring you the deeper discussion about the issues and people shaping our community and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with the stupendous Jeff Simmons. Jeff, how's it going? I love the adjectives you use every week, Celeste. I try to come up with the good ones, too. I'm doing well, but for now, I'm just going to say hello to you and see how you're doing. Doing okay, doing okay. Very excited for this program. Of course, there are a lot of things we could be talking about. Lots of attention this week, of course. Former President Donald Trump's big, not unexpected, victory in the Iowa caucuses. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, right there on his heels, sort of. But the candidates are now back here in the Northeast for the New Hampshire primary. That's coming right up on Tuesday. So we'll definitely be keeping an eye on that. And what else are you looking at, Jeff? You know, I've been paying a lot of attention to local city politics, the story that was breaking today in a number of outlets about someone we've had here, Celeste, on WBAI a number of times, former New York City controller Scott Stringer, who is now taking that next step towards a, a potential mayoral run rents again to challenge the, of course, the incumbent, Eric Adams. We'll see how that goes. But also a lot of uh, issues going on with the New York City Council right now. Uh, uh, the speaker's coming under attack for shifting a number of council members in their leadership positions, uh, chairing certain committees. Uh, a number of the members who are progressive and voted against the budget last year feel that they were sh- taken away from leave because they voted against the budget. So that I know uh, is going to come up. Especially as we get into all the budget hearings. I'm sure Celeste. Uh, for the uh, you're waiting the mayor's state of the city that's coming up soon too next week i believe yeah it's really it's really something and yeah and just to go back for a second there talking about scott stringer i'm just trying to think to myself okay how long have i actually been writing about scott stringer like no no joke i think i i think i probably met him i want to say like 2001, 2002, maybe. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, I think he was in the assembly representing Manhattan at that time, because that's when I went up to Albany, when I first went up to Albany anyway, uh, for the New York Daily News. So, um, you know, interesting guy. He's had a very long career. You know, you think about it being in the assembly, Manhattan Borough President, uh, controller, um, you know, very interesting controller's race. And I remember covering mm-hmm. that controller's race where he ran uh, or Elliot Spitzer ran against him, I guess you could say. Uh, that was a, a very interesting contest at well. But, you know, a guy who's been around New York politics for a very long time. And it will be interesting to see because, you know, typically it's pretty hard to beat an incumbent uh, in in this town. I think that we know a couple of different things about uh, New York politics. One is that if you win the primary, especially, you know, if you win the Democratic primary, you are probably going to uh, win the election. And then secondly, uh, you know, it's it's just very hard to defeat an incumbent generally. So we'll have some interesting things here to figure out about uh, who is uh, uh, who is satisfied and who is not satisfied with with Mayor Eric Adams. You know, he's been through some uh, some tough things. He's been uh, he certainly had some. Uh, how should I say some controversy regarding uh, people in his immediate circle? So uh, that that will be very interesting to see uh, what goes on there. But we are going to have a really, really great 
program here. And if you're just joining us, you're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. I'm Celeste katz Marston, joined as always by the incomparable Jeff Simmons. And, uh, you know, there's really so much going on in the country, in the world right now. And that's why we're making a deliberate choice today in our uh, in our topic of conversation. We are uh, deciding here to pause and to talk about something that really does need our attention, whether or not some people still think so. And that, of course, is COVID and particularly, particularly long COVID. So, you know, it's been easy for a lot of us, certainly not all of us, uh, but some of us to go about our lives acting like COVID is a thing of the past. You know, it's a dark spot in our history that we've somehow moved on from. And, you know, we haven't gone into another lockdown since those early grim months of 2020. And Americans, I think, will never forget. I certainly won't forget, you know, the images and the feelings that we had at those times, you know, the fear, struggling to keep kids on track with their schooling at home, cheering on the healthcare workers, banging pots and pans, singing outside the window, trying to stay connected on Zoom and, and texts and all those things. Meanwhile, as these refrigerator chucks, and I know you all remember this, refrigerator chucks full of bodies of the people taken from us by the virus were chugging away on our streets. So, you know, eventually, of course, things started looking up and the vaccines rolled out and a lot of people rolled up their sleeves, though not as many, I think, as health, health officials would have hoped. And new medications helped ease the suffering of some of the people who did get sick. Schools and businesses opened again. Masks came off. Parties, weddings, travel, all that stuff went back on the calendar and life seemed sort of more normal again. And some people even said that COVID a disease that killed more than a million people in this country was not a big deal anymore. Thing of the past. They refused vaccine boosters formulated for the new variants of the coronavirus. They said it was no worse than the flu or even the common cold. But now we know that's not the case. COVID is still around. It is still contributing to deaths. And those who do survive it have a new illness to grapple with. Maybe not so new, but we do want to talk about it today. That's long COVID and there is no cure. Now, we're going to hear more about this in just a moment with our first guest, who I'm very excited to welcome to the program here. But, you know, symptoms of long COVID might be uh, loss of your ability to smell and taste, exhaustion after you do any physical activity, chronic coughing, brain fog, thirst, heart palpitations. That's just a partial list of what you might experience. So according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's 2022 National Health Interview Survey, about 18 million Americans said they had ever had long covid Women were likelier than men to have long COVID. And while it was generally most severe in older people, people from the ages of 35 to 49 were the most likely to have the condition. So those are big numbers. So why aren't we talking more about long COVID? That's why we're talking about this today. Why are we becoming kind of lax in thinking about and worrying about COVID and long COVID? So Today, we are going to be joined right now, as a matter of fact, uh, by somebody that I've known for a long time and whose work I really respect. Erin Durkin is a New York City journalist. She's worked for Politico, The Guardian, and the New York Daily News, which is where I met her 
many years ago when we were both stationed at City Hall. She's done a lot of amazing work covering politics over the years. But today we're asking Erin to join us because of a piece she wrote for the worker-owned news site, Hellgate. And in that piece, she documents her own, frankly, frightening experiences with long COVID. And she questions the city's response to this sickness. So without further ado, Erin Durkin, welcome back to WBAI. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So just want to start. I know Jeff Jeff is anxious to talk to you, too. We're having a little bit of a, a tech issue. We're getting him back on the line, but you'll have to uh, you'll have to settle for me for for a couple of minutes here. But um, okay. first of all, thanks for joining us. And, you know, how how are you feeling right now? Because the, the piece I read that you did incredible piece, by the way, in, in Hellgate came out some months ago. So, you know, kind of have some catching up to do. Yeah. Um, so what's happened in the meantime is, unfortunately, I got COVID for a second time, actually uh, was infected while seeking treatment for my long COVID um, in an infusion uh, center uh, where I think I was exposed. And unfortunately, that has set me back uh, quite a bit. Um, I My shortness of breath in particular has gotten quite a bit worse. Um, lately, I've been having a lot of headaches and um you know, that I'm now back in physical therapy and trying to regain some of the progress I had made, trying to get back into a rehab protocol, but it's been a bit of a struggle um, and definitely has uh, set me back quite a bit. So maybe you should set the scene a little bit here more, Erin, before we go on to talk about your experiences with, with COVID and long COVID. First of all, for, for people who may know the name and may have read tons of your stories over the years like me, um, but don't know you as a person, first of all, just how old are you? Uh, I'm 38. 38. Okay. And before you got COVID, generally, how would you have described yourself? Were you like pretty reasonably good health? Were you pretty active? You know, what, what kind of what kind of life were you living before this happened? Yeah, so I was very active. You know, I would spend all day kind of running around the city doing a lot. Um, I did have an autoimmune disorder, which I think made me more predisposed to getting long COVID. But it did not really affect my daily activities. I was able to live a full and active life, um, you know, like going on long walks, hiking, et cetera, you know, spending all day running around the city. Um, and that now has all changed. And I think we're going to get Jeff back here in just a minute. So I will just keep barreling along unless Jeff, are you there? Are you back with me? And I'm with you. And, and uh, Aaron, I missed you. I missed you. It, it, and Aaron, it's great to hear your voice. I know we're neighbors, although we never see each other in Jackson Heights. We are. <laughs> so nice I'm trying to, to catch up. I, I, I had read the, the, the very personal piece that you had written. You know, I, I also know from a number of my staff members, everyone, everyone is getting impacted by COVID once again. And so I don't want to I'm going to listen to a question or two that Celeste uh, is going to ask so I know where to pick up so I don't get redundant at all, but I appreciate our listeners understanding when I had tech issues just a few moments ago. Celeste? Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Really, really appreciate it and glad that we have you back here with us. So we are talking to Erin Dirk, and she's a political reporter uh, here in New York City, uh, has worked for, I've probably read your, her work in Politico, The Guardian, The New York Daily News, but actually somebody who had to, has had to take a step back from her work and, and 
living her her normal life because of long COVID. And she wrote this really compelling piece. Everybody should check it out in Hellgate. That's a a relatively new worker owned news site that uh, you can check out online. So, Aaron, just to, just to go back, you know, when did you first? actually get COVID? Because from what I understand, you know, you were super careful about trying not to get COVID and and you took a lot of precautions, but you were one of the people who, despite their best efforts, you know, still got exposed to the virus. Yeah, I did. You know, I, I continued taking precautions and I was able to make it through, you know, the first big Omicron wave uh, when most people got it um, and did not get it then. But unfortunately, in uh, July 2022, uh, I did get it for the first time, and that's when uh, the long COVID symptoms set in shortly thereafter. So for people who may not know, um, how do you know when you've gone from, is it is it just that you don't get better or that you get somewhat better, but something is still feels really off? Because people may be wondering themselves, like, maybe I have long COVID. How, how would you describe it for people who aren't sure? Yeah, so for me, I mean, there was one really clear moment when it became clear that things were not quite right. Um, you know, I had had, I had been sick for about a week. You know, I had flu-like symptoms. I had a fever, cough, you know, sore throat, things like that, uh, pretty much what you'd expect. And that had mostly resolved. I was feeling better. Um, and, you know, about a week in, I said, okay, I think I feel well enough that I should be able to work, you know, from home, uh, get on my computer, catch up a little bit. And um, I did that. I, you know, made myself a cup of coffee, sat down at my desk, turned on my computer. And within an hour or two, my heart was racing. My heart rate was extremely high. I was extremely dizzy to the point where I could no longer sit up. I experienced a lot of brain fog. You know, I okay, I need, I need to go back to bed. I need to log off. I should, you know, send my boss an email saying I can't work anymore. It took me probably half an hour to write that one-line email because I just couldn't think. Um, so I went back to bed and was hoping, you know, okay, I'm just still sick. I need a few more days, and uh, hopefully this will resolve. But ultimately, it never did. Uh, it turned out to be uh, a condition called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is uh, quite commonly being triggered by COVID and which is characterized by um you know, an excessively high heart rate, uh, 130, 140, sometimes higher just from standing up, um, which then causes a cascade of additional symptoms, which I went on to experience. So, Erin, the headline of your Hellgate piece was, NYC has left people with long COVID behind. Talk a little more about why that's the case and did you seek help and, and find yourself unable to get it curious how you know what your thoughts are about the healthcare system yeah um so i would say there are a few different things that that uh i mean by that and one is the healthcare system um and did i seek help and wasn't able to get it i mean i have had access to a lot of care and resources but the reality is there just is not much help available there is no approved treatment whatsoever for long COVID at this point, despite the millions of people and the uh, several years now that have passed by of people suffering from this. Um, so I was able to find doctors eventually. It took a while. I've seen probably about 20 doctors, but uh, was able to find doctors who are, who are quite knowledgeable and empathetic about this. But there's just not a whole lot that they can offer because there is no 
approved treatment. You know, I've tried many, many medications. Um, some of them help a little bit around the edges with certain symptoms, but there's nothing that really is a game changer or actually resolves the symptoms. And that is the case for the vast majority of people with long COVID um, because there just is not much treatment available. Um, I guess the other respect in which I meant that is some of the things that Celeste was talking about earlier on with the fact that people are trying to move on, quote unquote, from the pandemic um, and often doing that by pretending the pandemic doesn't exist, pretending that COVID doesn't exist and leaving those of us who are affected by it and are still at risk from it behind in a way that, you know, we cannot safely participate in society um, without being put in danger uh, because all mitigations have been withdrawn and we've been left in a situation where we have to choose between, you know, isolation or constantly being at risk. You're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston here with Jeff Simmons, and we're speaking to political reporter Erin Durkin about her battle with long COVID. And Erin, you know, just want to bring this home for people. You know, the the physical costs, the emotional costs of long COVID is one thing, but you wrote also in your Hellgate piece about the cost of some of your medications. I mean, can you talk about the financial burdens of long COVID, particularly as somebody who has had to take time off from work to to try to get better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, the burden on people with long COVID um, is a lot of a lot of people can't work, and a lot of people have lost their income, uh, including myself. Um, you know, I'm lucky enough that my partner has a good job, and I'm not in dire financial straits, but. Um, I've certainly lost my income and some people do not have that level of support or safety net, you know, and are faced with not being able to pay their living expenses, potentially becoming homeless, et cetera, because disability benefits are incredibly difficult to get. And uh, even when you do get them, the the amounts are very small. Um, On top of that, there is the cost of medical expenses, medications, et cetera. You know, I mentioned in the piece, one of my heart medications that I take, uh, even with insurance, it was covered by insurance, but my copay was going to be $550 for one month supply. Um, so I ended up, now I order that medication from Canada, um, and I pay about $90 a month for it. I have another medication that I have to pay out of pocket for because it has to be made in a special compounding pharmacy, et cetera, you know, on top of the cost of copays and, you know, regular cost of medication, over-the-counter supplies. Uh, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would say, I guess to put in perspective, I actually just opened an FSA at the beginning of the year and I've spent already over a thousand, I think about $1,100 out of that, uh, in mid January. Um, and that's some, not 100% all of my expenses. Wow. So, Aaron, your story should be enough, and thankfully you're still here to tell it, but what can you tell? the folks who are listening right now about why they should take COVID and the possibility of long COVID more seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think the first thing to know is that it's, it's extremely common. Um, even with vaccines, even with Omicron, um, we're looking at about uh, 10%, maybe 5 to 10% of people 
uh, of COVID infections resulting in long-term symptoms. Um, and it also, um, even if you've had COVID before, reinfections continue to be dangerous. There's been research that's come out documenting that essentially the risk compounds with each infection. So just because you've had it before and you're unscathed um, does not mean um, that you won't get it next time. So people getting COVID over and over again, you know, experiencing um, more and more chances kind of in this Russian roulette of having a health condition that might last for months or years or potentially even the rest of your life. You know, there's also been a lot of research that's come out um, in terms of increased risk of heart disease, heart attacks, stroke, diabetes, autoimmune disorders, um, all of which is increased um, by COVID infections. So there's a host of other health risks. You know, I think one of the problems with the messaging has been there's this perception that either you die or it's fine. Um, mm. And, you know, the death is the only bad outcome. So if you, if you don't... If, you know, a thousand people a week in the United States are still dying, but there's this perception, oh, if it doesn't kill you, then it's not a problem. Um, and in actuality, you know, the much more common adverse outcome is this kind of long-term illness uh, that can happen to anyone. And, you know, we've heard a lot of people saying, and, and I know people who feel this way and I am concerned about it, you know, it's not worth getting vaccinated anymore. Maybe at the beginning when we didn't know what was going on, people got the shot, they weren't thinking, but now people are, uh, even if they are not suspicious of vaccines generally, which is a whole nother problem, uh, you know, they're just saying it's not worth it anymore. Why should I get this next booster? What I'm going to get sick anyway. Who cares? You know, what... Um, what would you say to people who have that kind of attitude that it's not even worth trying to avoid getting COVID either you're going to get it or you're not. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I will say I do understand a degree of disappointment in the vaccines in the sense that, you know, at the beginning it was sold as get your vaccine, you'll never get COVID, you'll be safe. And, you know, for, for a while that was close to being true. Uh, and then it wasn't anymore. And, you know, certainly I do feel disappointed that, I got all my vaccines and not only did I still get COVID anyway, but I still got this long-term health condition caused by COVID. Um, and I, I do think we need better vaccines. I think we need, you know, some of these nasal vaccines that are being developed that might actually block transmission. Um, however, you know, I still believe in getting my, you know, staying up to date on the vaccines because it's the best thing we've got. Um, you know, it does decrease your chances of COVID infection, granted only modestly and only for a limited period of time, but it's better than nothing. It does um, decrease the risk of long COVID of, again, only modestly. You can still get it, but there is some amount of decrease. And then, you know, perhaps most importantly, the risk of severe illness and death, you know, still a thousand Americans a week dying from COVID, um, that is dramatically reduced by the vaccine. Um, so to me, the benefits still outweigh the, uh, the cost, certainly, even though I do wish we had, we had better options. So Aaron, I know we only have about a minute or so left. Uh, just finally, what, is there anything you'd like to see New York City or New York State or even the federal government do to better inform people about the risks of COVID and basically convince them that they should be protecting themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a need for a huge amount of research and funding. Um, 
and better uh, research and clinical trials into potential treatments, and that is a huge need. Um, I think there also is a need just for simply a public warning for, you know, people in power to be messaging that this is a risk that you're facing because there is no warning right now. Um, people are being told, oh, it's mild, it's fine, don't worry about it. Um, I do think, you know, at a, at a bare minimum, um, we need to be issuing a public warning and saying that actually there is, there is a high degree of risk that you may never be the same um, after an infection and let people at least have that information uh, when they make decisions about uh, what they want to do to protect themselves. And before we let you go, Aaron, please let our listeners know if they'd like to learn more about you or check out some of your work, where should they go? Yeah, sure. So um, the piece that uh, you all have been referencing is on Hellgate. Um, you can look that up on their website. Uh, I've done a few other stories for them that you can see um, on the Hellgate website as well. Um, or you can follow me on Twitter, Aaron M. Durkin. Aaron Durkin, thanks so much for joining Celeste and me here on Driving Forces on WBAI today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. And if you just tuned in, this is Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM New York. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, joined by my stupendous co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston, and we were just talking with Aaron Durkin about long COVID. So we're going to move right along. Uh, most of the mainstream outlets are doing a lot less coverage of COVID than back when the virus first emerged or even in that first like year after we got put in lockdown, but that's not true of everyone. Our next guest, Betsy Ladyshets, is an independent science, health, and data journalist focused on COVID-19 and the future of public health. She is co-editor of The Sick Times, which is a new nonprofit publication chronicling the long COVID crisis, which she co-founded after more than three years of writing a surveillance-focused newsletter and blog, the COVID-19 Data Dispatch. And Betsy works part-time at the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing and was recently a journalism fellow at Muckrack, where she contributed to award-winning COVID-19 investigations. Her work has appeared in Science News, The Atlantic, Stat News, and other national publications, and locally, she's worked with Gothamist and WNYC. Betsy, welcome to WBAI's Driving Forces. Hi, thanks for having me. So to start off, why did you and your colleague decide to launch the Sick Times? What was what was missing from the conversation and who were you writing for? Yeah, so I and Miles Griffiths, who is my co founder and co editor at the Sick Times, are both longtime freelance writers. Uh, we've both been covering COVID and long COVID for the whole pandemic. Miles also has long COVID himself and has been writing about it from a personal angle. And we were both finding, especially in the last year or so, that we were having a really hard time landing ambitious stories about long COVID. You know, we wanted to do big stories about things like challenges to accessing healthcare, uh, lack of support from government agencies, both at federal and more local levels. Um, and particularly wanting to do more investigative and accountability reporting, as well as service journalism, uh, which is basically stories that would really help people who themselves are dealing with long COVID uh, better respond, whether that's, you know, having more informed conversations with their doctors or understanding the kind of investigations into potential treatments. Um, and other things of that nature. So our audience, we really consider it to be people with long COVID and then their friends and family members, researchers, physicians, 
and other people who are maybe in the COVID conscious community or in the public health community and want to keep abreast of developments uh, from this crisis. So Betsy, thank you so much for being here with us today. I think it's really important what you're doing. I'm really glad you're here to talk about it because, you know, the thing I want to ask you about next is how do you think that this general sort of fall off that we're seeing in reporting, serious reporting, excuse me, on COVID could be contributing to people not taking the virus as seriously as we did certainly at the beginning of 2020, but even a year ago or two years ago. Do you think there's a connection between how people perceive the virus as being uh, prevalent or, or dangerous and just not seeing it in the news that much? Yeah, I definitely think there's a connection there. I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand the long-term ramifications of an infection. Um, even a lot of people in the science and medical communities, I mean, many doctors, particularly people like primary care doctors, are very busy. They don't necessarily have time to keep up with all the latest research. And as this topic has sort of garnered less attention in the mainstream media, it's sort of hard to know about the developments if you're not really out there looking for them. Um, and so that can be really challenging. And I think, you know, if, if, if the, the sort of narrative of pandemic fatigue that we often hear about in the media or hear about from political leaders, um, a lot of this sort of seems like a uh, re- uh, self, self-fulfilling cycle where we're told that we have pandemic fatigue, so we feel that we have pandemic fatigue. When in fact, if you talk to people, you know, who maybe have loved ones with long COVID or have seen the kinds of impacts that it has, uh, they might understand that, you know, actually that is... I wouldn't say maybe a fully false narrative, but something that, you know, you can kind of push back on a bit if, if you have experience that says otherwise. Um, uh, this morning, actually, I was watching a hearing from the Senate, uh, the Senate Help, Help Committee, led by Senator Bernie Sanders, had a hearing about long COVID. And one thing that a lot of people who are watching that were pointing out is that even though the senators were making very highly informed points about long COVID, talking about its severity, talking about the need for more funding, uh, they weren't wearing masks. <laughs> um, by and large, they were not wearing masks, and, and they sort of didn't really make the connection. For the most part, a couple people did say this, but for the most part, the connection wasn't really made between treating long COVID and better protections for that community and, you know, preventing COVID infection, even though, as uh, Ziad Al-Ali, who is one of the scientists who spoke at the hearing, pointed out, the best way to prevent long COVID is to prevent a COVID infection. Um, and so I think a lot of people maybe understand this, but it doesn't always necessarily translate to behavior in the way that I think many people in the community would like to see. And if you just tuned in, you're listening to Driving Forces on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI.org. We are talking with Betsy Ladija, Jess, co-founder of the investigative news site, The Sick Times, about her reporting on long COVID. You know, what's so interesting is in talking with people about COVID, often people have a lot of uh, misperceptions. And it's really interesting about trying to, you know, uh, counter them or correct them on this. People are very fixed in what they believe in. And I'm really curious how you use your website to kind of correct those misperceptions. I'd love for you to elaborate on that. Yeah. So I think there are a few big ones that come up over and over. One big misconception is that People with long COVID uh, only got sick in the first wave in 2020 or in the pre-vaccine era. Um, in fact, a lot of people have become sick, you know, later on after getting vaccinated or even after their second or third or fourth infection. 
Um, and that kind of pattern is something that there's still a lot of ongoing research on. Um, some scientists, you know, hypothesize that risk of long COVID might actually go up with more infections. But I think that's something that's not, not very well understood at this point. Um, another common misconception is that uh, long COVID or long-term symptoms only happen to people who had severe infections to begin with. Maybe they were hospitalized uh, or they were in an ICU because they had a really severe case. Um, it is actually true that, like, the research does show that people in that group who are hospitalized initially are more likely to have long-term symptoms. But because so many people who have COVID have mild cases or asymptomatic cases, uh, the majority of people with long COVID actually had mild cases to begin with, which I think is one reason why long COVID advocates often talk about, you know, the importance of resting after an initial infection, even if you feel like you're ready to you know, go back to your regular workout routine or whatever, maybe, maybe taking some time and making sure that you really feel up to what you're doing um, and also keeping an eye out for any kind of new symptoms that might emerge, uh, even, even if you have what feels like a relatively mild case. Um, I think people also have misperceptions about the severity of symptoms. Often the stories of long COVID that are elevated in the media highlight people who have kind of more severe cases Maybe it's somebody who used to be an athlete or used to be very active, used to be very, have a very intense work, work life, um, and then suddenly they're not able to work anymore or they're not able to do all these things they used to do. Um, and that is certainly one group of people with long COVID, but there is a range. There are people who maybe had another chronic condition uh, before getting COVID and the COVID infection led to worsening symptoms. Um, or there are more mild sort of examples as well, like many people who lost a sense of taste or smell after having COVID. Um, that might not be something that completely tears up your life. Maybe if you're like a chef, <laughs> that could be the case. Um, but, you know, there, there is sort of a range of symptoms and of impacts, but it's important to acknowledge and understand all of this. And I think part of what we're hoping to do at the Sick Times is to report on that range and to kind of elevate the voice of the voices of people with long COVID who come from all parts of that spectrum. Um, actually, one of the reasons why we chose the name The Sick Times rather than something that was really long COVID specific was because we wanted people to sort of see themselves in the name, even if they didn't necessarily identify closely with the term long COVID. Uh, I think we see a lot of, you know, posts on social media and the like these days, just like everybody's sick all the time now. <laughs> and I think that's sort of the, the, the idea we wanted to evoke of like, let's talk about why this is happening. Let's try to understand all of this research and uh, communicate about it together. So right now we are speaking with Betsy Ladejet. She is the co-founder of the investigative news site, The Sick Times, talking about long COVID. Betsy, earlier this month, The Sick Times reported on some CDC figures regarding deaths specifically associated with long COVID. And there was a big warning in there that this could be a real undercount. So what do those figures look like? You know, we don't often hear about people we we hear much more uh more seldom about people dying uh in connection with covid certainly i don't think we hear very much about people uh dying in connection with long covid what do those numbers look like and what are some of the reasons why they might actually be really low really incomplete yes so the latest data from the cdc that was shared earlier this month was that they have tallied about 5000 deaths from or related to long COVID 
from 2020 through, I believe it was the end of 2023. Um, and that number was actually an update to a, a different report that the CDC released about a year ago um, that found about 3,500 deaths from 2020 through summer of 2022. Um, so sort of an update uh, and an addition to that prior data. Um, and the CDC's uh, reports here are, I think, considered to be a good starting point and a, a helpful acknowledgement, because as you say, a lot of people don't necessarily understand that long COVID can increase the risk of death, um, but still it's considered to be an undercount for a couple of different reasons. Um, one is the CDC's method for tallying this data is looking at death certificates, uh, which uh, death certificates can be extremely heterogeneous. Uh, I actually have done a lot of reporting on this topic in my past role as a reporter at Muckrock. We did a whole project looking at death certificates and COVID, um, and we found that there's a huge range in who fills out these death certificates. You know, they, they might be filled out by a doctor in one place, a medical examiner who's had training, or in other places and other counties, uh, death certificates might be filled out by uh, coroners who might be elected. Uh, they might not have uh, any medical training or they might have very limited training. Um, and they might even have like political leanings that impact how they uh, document COVID in their work. Um, so this is a huge challenge uh, for COVID reporting. And of course, it's amplified for long COVID because long COVID still isn't acknowledged by a lot of people in the medical community or well understood. Um, and there's not really a lot of training or material out there uh, telling the people who fill out these certificates how to uh, find how to identify that long COVID might have played a role in somebody's death. Um, there's also not a lot of access to things like PCR testing these days, which plays a role in this as well. Um, so that that's kind of the challenge, and I think researchers who study this kind of data would like to see you know more guidance from the CDC. They've put out uh, some information on this, but maybe more training and more outreach uh, to improve the acknowledgement of long COVID and to kind of call for better, more, more comprehensive reporting. Uh, another thing that plays a role here is the potential for suicide linked to long COVID. Um, you know, people who have long COVID are likely to have, you know, depression, anxiety, other mental health issues that might be kind of new with long COVID, maybe linked to experiences of having a really hard time getting medical care or feeling abandoned by doctors or by friends and family members, or if they had, say, depression previously, might be worsened by long COVID. And so there's really a documented uh, risk of suicide. Um, and there have been some like relatively high profile examples of this in the community. Um, and so I think there's also a need to maybe study that specific, that, that specific phenomenon better uh, and understand how to help people who really feel abandoned and, and really feel like they're suffering. So, Betsy, you spoke to Neiman Reports, that's part of the Neiman Foundation for Journalism at, at Harvard, um, about your work with the Sick Times. And you made a very interesting point about um, privilege, about how uh, economic privilege or social privilege might factor into how we perceive, how we find out who has long COVID record keeping associated with long COVID. So are we missing a lot? Or are we not talking enough about the impact of long COVID on people who maybe are, have lower incomes, less access to health care? Is there part of this story that is not being told? 
Yeah, I think that's a huge challenge, and it's something that a lot of the researchers and the patient advocates who I've talked to are very concerned about. Um, We know that with COVID, acute COVID, it's been more likely to impact people who, say, work in essential jobs or working in person all the time um, or are lower income or otherwise, you know, maybe don't have as much access to the healthcare system. And yet, in order to get a diagnosis of long COVID, you need to sort of jump through a lot of hoops. Like, first, you need to know what long COVID is. You need to have a doctor that you can talk to about it. You need to find a doctor who believes you or who is willing to, you know, go through and understand your symptoms, which could be complex, could be unusual. Uh, Often long COVID symptoms don't necessarily show up or aren't necessarily reflected on, like, standard medical tests. So there are just a lot lot of challenges to even getting a diagnosis, and I think that really impacts both the data that we have and also the public perception of, you know, seeing long COVID as a disease for, like, middle-aged white women um, who are, like, middle, middle, uh, upper middle class, um, when, in fact, you know, there could be a lot of people who have long COVID or have some permutation of long-term symptoms following the COVID, uh, COVID case, and aren't necessarily aware of this. Um, at the Sick Times, we actually just republished a story uh, by a newsroom called Palabra, which is affiliated with the uh, Hispan- National Association of Hispanic Journalists and uh, Northwest Public Broadcasting, which is a radio station in the Northwest uh, that looked specifically at long COVID in Latino community, particularly for farm workers living in uh, Washington state and really examined a lot of this, kind of showing the barriers to getting care for people who might not speak English very well, might not have health insurance, uh, might not have the ability to go to a bunch of doctor's appointments or pay for a bunch of care out of pocket. Um, and so I think that that story kind of looked at one piece of this puzzle, but there are probably a lot of other stories that could be written like that for other communities uh, that are kind of under-resourced and you know, don't have the attention that really might be needed when it comes to long COVID. You know, you're mentioning, you know, stories that could be written. I'm also thinking about statements and uh, efforts that could be initiated by elected officials, for instance. And I'm really curious, you know, uh, if you believe that a number of elected officials and candidates are or are not even addressing this. I mean, do you see that ramping up during this election year? Or do you think that the long COVID story really is getting extra lost because of other news in general? Yeah, I mean, I think people want it to ramp up, uh, and certainly there's been some attention. Like I mentioned, there was a Senate hearing this morning, um, and thanks to some pressure from long COVID advocates kind of calling senators' offices and making sure they knew about this hearing, uh, a lot of senators were in attendance. Um, I was talking to an advocate earlier this afternoon who said that they had counted up, I, I believe, 12 out of the 15 people who they they had targeted to Uh, make sure they attended, were actually in the room at some point. Um, And so I I think to a certain extent people are paying attention, uh, but there is a desire to see the sort of lip service paid in a hearing actually translate into action in terms of policy proposals. Um, Another kind of interesting uh, event at this hearing was, uh, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the senators were not wearing masks, even though they were talking about the very dangerous disabling impacts of long COVID. Um, And at one point during the hearing, uh, a candidate actually for Congress who's based in Los Angeles, his name is Joaquin Beltran, uh, held up a sign, like a handmade sign saying masks save lives, 
uh, that went directly into the live stream camera that was documenting the hearing. Um, so that's maybe one local candidate who has made this part of his platform and made the effort to come to this hearing. Um, but by and large, I think there's sort of some people talking about it, but a desire to really see more action. Betsy Ladejets, we wish we had more time to talk to you about the excellent and important work that you are doing. But if people want to find out more about it for themselves or support the work that you do, where can they go? Yeah, so our website is thesicktimes.org, um, where you can look up The Sick Times. Uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, we have a weekly newsletter. So all of that is a great way to kind of follow what we're doing. Um, and we are soliciting donations from readers as well. We're aiming, we're a nonprofit, so uh, getting that kind of reader support is, is very important for us. Betsy, thank you so much for spending your time here with us to, uh, to get the word out about your reporting on COVID and long COVID. And uh, we hope to have you back on the program soon for an update. Yeah, thanks for having me. That was Betsy Ladejetz. She is the co-founder of thesicktimes.org, reporting on COVID, long COVID. Check it out. You're listening to Driving Forces with me, Celeste Katz-Marston, and my scintillating co-host, Jeff Simmons, here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming at WBAI.org. So we're definitely always very excited to bring you serious reporters like Betsy and Aaron Durkin at the top of the show, because they give us real insight into important topics. Topics, like the one we're talking about today, long COVID. And we're going to open up the phone lines in just a moment so we can hear from you. But before that, we just want to remind you that we can bring you guests like this and talk about these topics that affect all New Yorkers and beyond unless we have your support. So just take a few moments. Head to WBAI.org to support this station and this show today. It only takes a second, and it really does matter. And you can give any amount that you choose. Remember, it's tax deductible. Even better, go to WBAI.org and click the green button to become a BAI buddy in the name of Driving Forces. You can sustain this program by making a recurring monthly donation, and you can do it in any amount that you choose, really. Most people give 10 15 or $20. We need your help. We need it today. Again, that's WBAI.org. And thanks in advance. And now it's time to hear from you. Give us a call, 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Get in on this conversation. Do you have long COVID or do you maybe take care of someone who's dealing with it? Do you think the media, do you think New York City, New York State are doing enough to keep people informed about it? We want to hear from you here on Driving Forces. The number to call is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. We'll be right back with your calls. You're listening to WBAI New York.
Black Crows here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org Remedy. And that is what we are looking for here. But first, we want to hear from you. 212-209-2877. 212-209-2877. Running a tight ship here. Please keep it brief. We're going to go to the phones right now. WBAI, you are on the air. What's your name and where you're calling from? Hi, you're on the air, WBAI. What's your name and where are you calling from? Roger from New Milford. Hey, Roger. How you been? Good. Hey, uh, listen, the credibility of your guest, uh, the COVID virus, uh, they say the diameter of that thing is about three microns. The best uh, N95 mask can stop five microns. So you're basically trying to stop mosquitoes with a chain link fence. It don't work. Secondly, long covid is it long COVID or is it a, a, a reaction to the vaccine? Gary Knowles done some excellent work on this. There were some very good hearings in the Senate. Dr. Peter Corey, you guys need to look into what's going on with this vaccine. Okay, Please so, well, Roger, do you, believe, do, do you believe that COVID exists and long COVID exists? I believe COVID exists, yes. Okay. Oh, that's a start. That's a start. And then, you, but you, but you don't. Do you think the vac- vaccines don't work? I, I understand that even some people who do get vaccinated can still get COVID. No vaccine is foolproof. I totally get that. Yeah, it's not a vaccine. Actually, it's an experimental DNA modifier. Uh, the president of the United States fully vaccinated. Technically, it's a it's an it's an mRNA okay. modifier, but. Uh, it modifies mRNA is the messenger. It's messenger RNA. Yes, it messenger DNA. RNA. But also I mean, Roger. Okay, but but wait a minute. So I mean, the program. I'm, I'm going to have to go to another call. Not not that I do not appreciate hearing from you. I really do, Roger. You are you are a reliable guy. We we depend on you for this call segment. But you know, I guess what I'm saying here is. You know, we're trying to get people aware of the fact that, you know, certainly there is no foolproof way to avoid getting COVID. Like, I fully accept that. People who are super careful still get COVID. People who have gotten COVID once might get it again, even if they, you know, take precautions. But I think that we can agree, or at least I hope we can agree, that it is not pointless to still take precautions, right? Can we can we at least agree on that one? Okay, Roger, I, I enjoyed our time together, and I guess it's over. So we're going to go to our next call, WBAI. You're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Yes, uh, greetings um, from the cave, and it's my at here. A uh, valuable program today. Looking forward to um, uh, health aid. Uh, and, and if you would mention the name of Erin's of article and um, the Sick Times um coverage. Uh, I'd like to share uh, Allison Stewart of uh, WNYC, a program called All of It that comes on at 12 to uh, 2 p.m. I believe it was Monday, possibly Tuesday, but would be on her archive. She had Dr. Mark Horowitz um, uh, and uh, Rachel uh, someone who did a piece on the prevalent cough uh, among New Yorkers very, and, and an article related uh, on New mm. York Magazine. I believe it was um, um, Mark Horowitz who spoke of last year um, being uh, uh, a triple-demic, and this year 
being mm-hmm. a, a five-part disease, so the flu, the COVID, and right. uh, RSV. RSV. And then uh, Dr. Eric Schiller of the Scripps Institute on another program on WNYC talking about a 30-part uh, variant of the Omicron. So a lot and, of and Matt, before I'm, and I'm, I'm right up against the clock. I hate to be rude. You know, yes, I appreciate your you. calls, but I just want to give you that. I just want to give you that information that you asked for. So the piece by Aaron Durkin is uh, titled uh, New York City has left people with long COVID behind. And you can find it on Hellgate, the website Hellgate. That's Hellgate nyc.com. So Matt, thank you for your call. We're going to have to wrap up the show here. We want to thank our guests today, Aaron Durkin and Betsy Ladajetz, uh, respectively political reporter, formerly of Politico, the New York Daily News, the Guardian, and Betsy Ladajetz is the co-founder of The Sick Times. Uh, also want to thank our engineer today, Catherine, uh, who is doing a stellar job for us, stepping in for Reggie Johnson. And um, Jeff, do we have anybody else to thank besides our listeners and our callers, or should we go right to what's coming up next well let's go right to what's coming up in our limited time next week same time same place here in wbai celeste and i will be joined by u.s congressman dan goldman and we'll also be joined then by former congressman mondaire jones same time same place here in wbai so make sure to tune in next week if you missed any part of today's program, you can find Driving Forces on Apple, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts. This has been Driving Forces with Celeste Katz, Marston, and Jeff Simmons. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and stay tuned to WBAI for more great programming. See you on the radio.